2: introducing the new starbucks pistachio cream cold brew silky
0: pistachio cream cold foam tops our bold smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor make today a good day order ahead on the starbucks app
1: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I am sat here looking at my colleagues, Mark Pringle and Jasper Miroslav Bowie. (laughs) Hello, Barney. On my computer screen. Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, I'm also looking at our esteemed colleague, Martin Collier.
3: Hi, Barney. Very nice to be
1: here. (laughs) Hi, Martin. Martin is joining (laughs) us from Stratford in East London, and... Uh, delighted to have you. I'd call it <laughs> in Stratford. It's it's a foreign country to <laughs> yeah, West London. It certainly is. Like me. <laughs> anyway, it's lovely to see all of you and. Today is something of an American special on the RBP podcast. We'll be talking about Graham Marcus's classic book, Mystery Train. And we'll be hearing clips from an audio interview with Rufus Wainwright. But first, we're going to have a little chat about Lucinda Williams, who's releasing a new album next week, and with whom we are featuring three great interviews on this week's homepage. Martin and Mark, I know you are both fans of Lucinda Williams. Martin, why don't you, can you put Lucinda in some kind of context for us? Well,
3: I think what's interesting about her is she has always ploughed her own furrow, even though she's obviously influenced by a whole host of things, from Hank Williams to kind of country music, but to the acoustic Delta blues. Yet she's always managed to put a personal stand on it. I don't know whether that's due to the fact that she has a rather poetic Paired back poetic sensibility. Her father was a famous poet, Miller-Williams. And the other thing I think that's interesting about her musically is that she's always toured with just a trio, with no banks of keyboards, no... It's usually just one shit-hot guitarist, like Doug Pettibone or Blake Mills, and a drummer and bass player, which, which leaves the music to have this kind of big space feel you know, it is not about a kind of giant soundscape of noise, but it has music with holes in it. And into that she pours this extraordinary cracked voice, which I know some people find slightly in affection now, and sometimes it slightly feels like that to me. But I think she's got a kind of her own thing so much to the point where she can play with anyone. So the last couple of albums have had Greg Lice on steel and Bill Frizzell on ambient noise yeah, jazz yeah. guitar and yet it's still always lucinda williams music it just kind of breathes and grows through this kind of now and it quite an extraordinary career yeah i mean my take's
2: obviously typically slightly, probably slightly different in that she made one album which to me is so brilliant that I find it puts the rest of her stuff in the shade, and that's Car Wheels and the Gravel Road, which I think is one of the great singer-songwriter, Americana, however you wish to describe it, records. And she does something lyrically, which I find fantastic, is that, um, for example, for me, the great song of the album is a song called Greenville. And it's 12-bar blues, and she uses the blues man's trick of repetition. She uses repetition a lot. But she uses it differently from the where 12-bar blues would do it. So basically, every verse is essentially a single line, but the way she repeats parts of the line just gives it so much power. Really I mean, she's basically describing a complete loser, this guy who gets into fights as a useless shit, and she's telling him to go back to Greenville, you know. But just by this extraordinary use of repetition, she just invests it with just enormous, enormous power. There's another great song, Change
3: the Locks, where she just adds a line to each verse so that it becomes a kind of just this string of changed the locks on my car. I've changed, yes. I've changed the locks in this town. It yeah. kind of just has this extraordinary yeah. building up of accretion of detail. Yeah, I mean, Martin, you're probably going to have to recommend some more. I mean,
2: I've listened to a bunch of her albums, but I find Car Wheels stands so head and shoulders above anything
1: World else like that Piers she's done. I think is a pretty decent record, I yeah. have to say. And actually, Essence,
3: the record she did with Charlie Sexton and, and lots of loops and guitars, is a really lovely record mm-hmm. too that has Lonely Girls on it. And broken butterflies, both great songs.
1: There was something about Car Wheels that really put her on the map, wasn't there? Because there was that long New York Times magazine article about the saga of how this record came together. It went through
2: (laughs) extraordinary. It sounds like it was recorded in ten minutes. In
1: fact, it took months and three different different
0: producers.
3: Yeah,
1: three years to get to a place where she could make a record that sounded like it was made in ten minutes. Yes.
2: I mean, interestingly, the, the first choice of producer I think it was Steve. A second, Earl, actually, and, and no, was Bonnie Raitt.
3: She had done the first stuff with Golf Morlicks, her regular guitarist. They had right. a huge falling out. That's right. That she took she took it to Nashville <laughs> for, to Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then it was, and then Rick Rubin was, was going to have some input. I mean, it, yeah. it was a long gestation. Well, they ended up with Roy Bittan
3: of the E Street exactly. Band re-recording huge amounts of it. <laughs>
2: I mean, the point I was going to make about the Steve Earle thing is rather like kind of a generation earlier, Bonnie Raitt's attempts to record an album with Lowell George producing, and that didn't work. That You could see that Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams are sort of parallel characters in some sort of ways. They, 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 you know, they're both mind-southern gossip to some extent. They're both outside of, let's say, country music as we understand it. But actually, putting someone in with someone who should be sympathetic doesn't always work. In fact, frequently doesn't work. And Roy Batan E Street Band piano player actually did a brilliant, brilliant mm-hmm. job. So that's a great. Record.
1: Can I mention the three pieces that are going to feature on the homepage? Please do. Because they sort of tell... At least part of the Lucinda Williams story. The first one, yes. interestingly, is sort of way before Car Wheels. It was when she was of all the labels she was she she was signed <laughs> to Rough Trade, one of the least typical Rough Trade artists. But Sean O'Hagan interviewed her in 1989 <laughs> for NME, and it kind of he makes it sound like she was almost going to kind of give up and sort of I was about to head off to the hills when Rough Trade signed me. So she made the Lucinda Williams album. The next piece is nine years later, R.J. Smith, the excellent R.J. Smith.
3: Yeah, fascinating piece.
1: Going to interview in Nashville, just as Car Wheels is about to come out. So it's, it's a really terrific piece about the album and just also kind of just how anomalous she is in the context of the Nashville establishment. It's a terrific piece, as is the last piece, which jumps forward another eight, nine years. Jan Juhelski interviewing her in California, where she's moved to Toluca Lake where I think Bob Hope lived. Which <laughs> and, uh, has no lake. There, no, there, there is a lake, because <laughs> Frank Archer <Sinatra laughs> had a house on the edge of it. Uh, and so she's moved to Toluca Lake. <laughs> she's living under the freeway. And her album West has just come out. They're all really good pieces. And she's a really fascinating woman. I and mean, I've spoken to her and I like her. And I think she's a, t- a really genuinely a great writer. And I think that does have something to do with her being steeped in... You know a, a certain Southern literary tradition. Would you agree, Martin?
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you can. It's really it's Faulkner. You know, Wise Blood, Flannery yes.
1: O'Connor. So, she actually all of that. met Flannery O'Connor. You know, when her dad had wow. Flannery O'Connor round for tea or something. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, so you know what I mean? I think that, that, that's quite heavy yeah. heavyweight <laughs>
4: credential.
1: <laughs> but I do think she's. I mean. I tell you one I would really like is I love her live album. Do you know do you know that the Live at the Fillmore album? I think mm. it's yeah. really great. I mean yeah, his live albums yeah. go. Mm-hmm. So I think she's still got it. I've heard there's like a couple of tracks from the forthcoming record on Spotify, but I've not heard much about whether it's great or not. She's always worth listening to, I think.
3: Yeah, I really like the last one, Death on Highway Twenty. Right. I think I may have got the title wrong, but that's a... That, I think, Mark, you might even like that record. <laughs> I mean, in a, <laughs> great soundstage. In a way,
1: guys, I don't know if you. I mean, she is sort of the kind of empress of the sort of alternative country sound that came up in the, in the 90s and labels like Lost Highway and so forth.
3: Yeah, but she's... I I find a lot of that stuff kind of rather... Bland yep. and and you know it's okay, but there's something bloody about Lucinda. You know,
1: I think that's absolutely right. And same with same with Steve Earle and others. It's very yeah. it's raw and it's visceral. Yeah. It's mm. usually about being like fucked over by some, <laughs> <laughs> some <laughs> worthless man. <laughs> If
3: you did a family tree of Lucinda Williams' exes who had songs written about them, it would be really, really
0: long. But <laughs> <laughs> no, she claims to still be friends with all of them, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, I... That, That's what that she claims
0: in the, some, the last piece, the Janu piece. She says, oh, I'm still friends with all of them. People think I'm bitter and hate men, but I'm still really good friends with all my exes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but they all speak with slightly more high-pitched voices yeah. <laughs> <in> these
1: days. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Lucinda Williams... We have quite a few pieces on her. These are three of the best that we've got on her. Yeah, they're excellent. I can't help thinking that she would have read Grill Marcus's Mystery Train
4: when it came out <laughs> in
1: 1975, <Segway>. i wager. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's my little segue. Now, look, I mean, this is this is a sort of sacred tome, I think, for at least three of us here. One of the first great rock books came out, as I say, in 75. Martin, did you read it when it first came out or shortly? I asking? did,
3: I did. And it was hugely influential just on the way I thought about music. What was interesting... Was that he, you know, it's a theory. (laughs) I've got a theory. (laughs) And oftentimes with Graham Marcus post this book, I've had trouble following his kind of theoretical, you know, tying punk to, you know, Derrida or
1: Dadaists.
3: Dadaists. And I get it, but, but this is a book that I really felt that he kind of, he nailed something, which is that you, that you write about the music in a kind of 360 degree way. So you bring in television culture, the news, the kind of weird way that people get influenced by things. And in doing that, he, he kind of adopts the Harry Smith anthology of folk music approach to it. That's one of the things that he really fires off is that kind of discovery of old, ancient, weird music and how it relates to, well, it, how it relates to Presley. You know, he goes back to Harmonica Frank this weird kind of songster who turns up at the Sun Studios and gets recorded. And he somehow ties that in with the band. He talks a lot in the appendices about Al Green. There's there's all these kind of fundamental things that ties together. Randy Newman, Sly Stone, the band. Yeah. You know, The
1: reason we're talking about it is that um, the Folio Society have just published a sumptuously illustrated edition of Mystery Train mm,
3: with rewritten appendices
1: with to... new appendices i mean this book has yeah. been through through so many different iterations hasn't it but it is like a sort of it's like the i mean subtitle images of america and rock and roll music it's kind of one of the bibles of american musical mythology
3: yes well he was following in the footsteps of a literary critic i think called leslie fielder so he applies literary criticism to rock music i mean i guess that's the big thing that he did really was was to take it seriously
1: yeah mark when did you read it
2: well, um, first 1st I'd like to point out that I wrote my thesis at art school about the links between and Did you finish it? Uh, I, I finished it, but I, I managed to misspell the word attitude throughout. <laughs> and, given uh, it, and given that attitude appeared just about every other sentence, that was a sort of shortcoming. How did you spell it? H- H- just, The double T in the wrong place. huge
5: Attitude. Attitude.
2: <laughs> and, that, and that was back in the old days when you were it on a typewriter, and you were not going to oh go through God. the retype the whole bloody thing. Um, I mean, in fact, it was Martin who introduced me to this book, so I reckon I probably read it fairly shortly after, after you, Martin. And I loved it, and I have to confess, I can't remember a damn thing about it. Now. <laughs> but then again, but then again, I can't remember a damn thing about. Once you have the breakfast, days, you know, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. <laughs> you know, it certainly had a huge impact on me. I was also, this is the period my love of the band was just becoming sort of huge and also love of Val Green and so on and so forth. So seeing a band I adored being sort of written about in that sort of way, I found very exciting. I kind of have a slight problem with people taking rock and roll that seriously. (laughs) You know, a bit of me is just a bit resistant, whether it's Grill Marcus or or anyone else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why, do, why do we well, take it rock and so
2: roll bloody seriously? seriously? <laughs> you know, I, look, it's, it's, it's quite possible I'm more of a smash hit myself at <laughs> my old age. You know, yeah, I, I am resistant to, to, to the over intellectualising of That's what I regard enough, as a fairly primitive.
3: But, but I would say that what balances it up is his actual love of like the, all the kind of crazy doo wop and all those things that, that aren't intellectualised. I mean, but they are kind of put in a cultural. Place, you know. I mean, I use this, but when before you could actually just order any record you want, or anything existed. You know, I remember trawling record shops to try and find Little Anthony and the Imperials songs when we were in the states, sure. or you know, th- there was a. It, it was a pathway to lots of stuff that I still listen to. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, somewhat
2: like Hermann Goering, when I hear the word culture, I do tend to reach for my revolver, you know. And um, I, I don't know. It's, I, I, it, there's just something about that way. I mean, I, I absolutely get yes. what you're saying about gateways, you know. I mean, we talked a few weeks back about Charlie Gillen, about Sound of the City, which is an enormous yeah. gateway. But that didn't choose to kind of, like, load all its baggage on it. It was a description and a, a contextualization. But it wasn't over ambitious in that respect. And that that's my problem with Grill Marxist's writing generally, and to some extent, that book.
0: Though, so having said I that, I could a between it. what we were talking about last week with Paul Gorman about this American myth making versus, I mean, Charlie Gillett, British, writes a book that doesn't do that. And I, I don't know. See, there seems to be an element of this national psyche that mm-hmm. Americans yes. want to do that. And I, I, but I think it can be useful as well. I think what you're saying about gateways is like when you can make those connections, that can be very important in terms of establishing why people even bother to listen to anything in the first place. I think
2: I'm sure I'm sure you're right. I mean, it's it's just curiosity because we have got to remember Elvis is just so huge mm-hmm. for yeah. well, I America. think
1: that was one of the really key things about this book. I mean, in one sense, you might have expected a rock critic of that period to be writing about the band, Sly Stone, Randy Newman. But the epic chapters on Elvis at a time when he was regarded as a sort of bloated las vegas joke that, no, that was that was I, I very think, yes. very influential i think and important yes i no,
2: i i think that's absolutely right and when, when i you know friends on facebook like bill holdship who revere Elvis in a way that let's say we didn't in 1970 mm-hmm. whenever it was you know and marcus definitely did that and also just the title of the book mystery train which of course was a Junior Parker song, but the defining version was one of Elvis's first cuts for Sun Records, and of course Just the band did it record. as well
1: on uh, Moonlight yes, yeah.
2: Absolutely. So, so as a song. It in itself that links whole exactly. bunch of I think that's together.
1: absolutely yeah, right, does. and it's just such an evocative title, wasn't it? You know, it really just yeah, conjured yeah. the magic of America and traveling yes. in America,
3: and also yeah. the kind of unknown yeah. quality of America. Really, you know, the mystery of the of the whole
4: yeah. thing. Train
0: What's interesting about the Elvis thing is that when the second edition of the book came out, I haven't read the book, so this is just sort of my armchair research about it, but apparently he refused to put Elvis (laughs) in the past tense, even though Elvis had recently died. The publisher said, can you put the Elvis chapter in the past tense since he's, you know, gone now? But Real Marcus was like, Elvis' presence was so powerful, I felt he's always in the present tense. So I think that does sort of speak to the importance of Elvis for the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. Actually, one of the other things about the
3: book is that it was the first time, the first book I read about music that was as exciting as listening to music in the, because of all these ideas and because of all this stuff that you suddenly had learned about, you know, the, the records that came before. It must have been an influence on you, Barney. I mean, you went on to write a... Great book
1: about the band. That's very kind of you, Martin. Um, the, the check the check <laughs> will be in the post. Actually, no. <laughs> with the lockdown, I'll just wire it to you. But, um, and, you. well, it, it, that's the, the perfect cue for me to mention that we're also running two pieces that we have by Grill on Roxback Pages. And one of them is about the band, almost inevitably. This is the piece he wrote for Good Times magazine in the summer of 69 when they played their first shows as. The band at Winterland. It's sort of classic Marcus. Even then, there's something quite dry and theoretical about about the way he <laughs> writes about the band. Even then, <laughs> but you know, I mean, this was an incredibly important moment. I mean, isn't it amazing that their very first show was such a complete disaster? He describes. <laughs> You know, what, what a disaster it was because Robbie was incredibly sick. They shouldn't have played the show at all. And they were booed off the stage. I mean, the, 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 the crowd who'd been waiting for this mythical group from Woodstock was so <laughs> enraged. They did then come back a couple of days later when Robbie, Robbie was feeling better and blew the roof off.
2: Isn't it correct that they had a hypnotist to on one side of the stage, <laughs> trying to hypnotise Robbie into be able to play the set it's without so sort of... It's so mad! You know,
3: it's so... That's insane. such an Albert Grossman idea, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Let's get a hypnotist. Yes,
1: completely. Complete Your stomach doing. feels fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The show must go on. I mean, it's <laughs> insane. We're also featuring, I'm delighted to say, we've we've got the excellent Andy Beckett on board. Just as a moment of mad spontaneity yesterday, I asked Andy, who is one of my favourite writers on The Guardian, political writers on The Guardian, whether we could add his 1993 interview with Greel. He goes to berkeley to interview him in the fascist bathroom has just come out and this is just a really interesting profile of grill interesting conversation it's not altogether adulatory i think you might find it interesting mark
3: no it is okay. it's really really interesting i came across it the other day i was going through a bunch of stuff in the loft and i'm for some reason came across that piece well, that is, yeah that is, no, it's that is, a great piece yeah
1: it is a fascinating piece and he sort of really talks about the way you know our Marxist books have been received and you know the dead elvis book was 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 called sort of you know pretentious fraudulent nonsense by some reviewers i mean some of grills <laughs> writing since mystery train has lost me, I would still go back to that book and say that it was a very powerful influence on me. I mean, it's fascinating to revisit something like Mystery Train at a time like this in Trump's America, you know, when you when you consider the sort of mythology that lies behind, you know, American exceptionalism. I would be really interested to read Greel now on what's happened since 2016. And even more specifically, what's happening now at the time of the virus, you know, there is something just so berserk about America sometimes.
3: Well, remember, he wrote it in the time just after Watergate. And so Nixon was his bogeyman at that point. And there's that brilliant, brilliant bit in the book where he's talking about Charlie Rich playing, I feel like going home to an audience and saying, I'm going to dedicate this to Richard Nixon. Oof. Yeah, And sure. there's an extraordinary bit where he says, you know, this is, a, I'm, I'm appalled by this. I've gone to see Charlie Rich, a singer I love. And he says this, and then he said, it made me think about all of my attitudes towards Nixon. It made him feel that Nixon was human. I don't think that would be true now of the current incumbent. No, no. <laughs> because he's so not human. No. And he makes Richard Nixon look good. Wow! Uh, we
2: got bashed in a, We got bashed for being anti-Trump in a review well, that on iTunes yeah, didn't the, podcast we the other someone, day. Someone
1: wrote, said, you know, what was it? Sneeringly woke, I think, was the phrase. <laughs> <I suppose laughs> that was used to that's, that's right. That is, that's right. <laughs> I like, going to get <laughs> badges made up saying sneeringly woke. Oh, uh, yeah, I, see, <laughs> woke. I
0: was thinking badges yeah. or t-shirts. I'm not sure. You know, t-shirts. T-shirts. T-shirt, t-shirt, it, it it yes, no, it's 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 got more yeah. weight
2: behind it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the RBP podcast. Sneeringly woke.
0: So thanks for that, mystery
1: reviewer. You made us all chuckle. It's a difficult one because sometimes I do think, you know, we, we should be sort of apolitical in the way we talk about music. But the times are so extreme that, frankly, I no longer care anymore. I don't know what you guys feel. I mean, I, I really don't care if we alienate somebody. I think the future of the human race is at stake here. And, um, you know, I mean, if people are offended what? by what we say about Donald Trump, I mean, you know, you're really welcome not to listen to us.
2: I, I feel that strongly yeah, that's about us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... yeah, no, guy do
1: Actually, there is a takeaway here, because in the audio interview, which I'll ask you to describe in a second, Mark, we're not going to hear this clip, but I I listened to Rufus Wainwright talking about the Puritans who came to America and how America is built on the legacy of people who didn't want to to sort of move into the modern era, (laughs) into the era of enlightenment. You know, they were terrified. Of, and, and we are seeing a massive kind of regression into insane religious fundamentalism, I think. So, but Mark, will you tell us about Rufus and this audio?
2: Yeah, this is September 2005. This is the wonderful Maureen Payton, I assume for the Mail, I don't know, the Daily Mail, interviewing a uh, phone interview with Rufus. So the sound quality isn't great, so on and so forth. But he, I mean, I've read a few, quite a few interviews, because actually I almost prefer his interviews to his music, because he does really give great interviews, and he's got a lot to talk about. He's got a hell of a lot to talk about. And we'll play a clip at the end, and this is about this, but what he really starts talking about is about his destiny to be a musician, his resistance to it, with Kate McGarrigal as a mother, with Loudon Wainwright III as a father. With a grandmother with musical background, he grew up in a family which was just drenched in music. And his sort of resistance to it, he kind of like dabbles in the idea of maybe doing classical music and so on and so forth. And eventually she comes, like as if he has really no choice. And and his sister Martha, who's also a very successful and very interesting musician, and he talks about this stuff in his relation, his difficult relationship with his father. His father's resentment at Rufus's success, even though he really admires what rufus does he didn't like the fact that rufus sold more records than he had ever done you know and his relationship with martha and the amount of music in the house and so on and so forth and, and he talks about it really beautifully i think i mean you know he is a really interesting man regardless of what you think I'm about a big fan, what he actually say, does
1: i really love yeah him. i know and you I are particularly absolutely love the two albums that he had made just Essentially, prior to this audio interview, want one and want two, which I think were later packaged together as a sort of single work. I I think I think right. right, You know, two of the greatest records made in the last twenty years.
2: I mean, I was very aware of his roots because certainly when Martin and I were well before art school, in my case, certainly with Loudon Wainwright III's third Mm. album, which was a a Mm. pretty big record. And then when we were at art school and McGarr- we loved the band, we loved all that stuff, and then the McGarrigal Sisters come out with that mm. absolutely gorgeous <clears> first <throat> album. And it really spoke to – I think I don't know about, about you, Marty, but I think it really spoke to both of us because it had that sort of sense of Americana that we'd got from the band yes. to some extent and other people like that. And so for him to come out of that family with those sorts of folk slash Americana roots – and then come out with this extraordinarily luxuriant music <laughs> that he yeah, himself... Almost baroque, <laughs> sort of orc-pop, <laughs> yeah. Almost baroque. It's it, yeah, as if Judy Garland went to fabulous... isn't
3: it? Well, it's of course, of- he, got, <laughs> and he did
2: a whole Judy Garland album, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, a, a song which is in itself fabulous, but has been covered by far too many people, which is Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. He actually he was about the only person who I think who's covered justified the effort of making it. Well, listen to the clip now, because he also talks extensively about his he, he puts them together really his addictions to drugs and his promiscuity yes. and and aids and we'll listen to this clip which is actually about
5: his addictions i think for me especially i'm really in a high-risk position just emotionally when you think th- of the fact that on one hand I'm gay on the other hand I'm a songwriter mm. um, and I'm sort of you know dealing in, in those darker emotions mm. and and also I'm, I'm a man mm. and, and, and for me even you know out of the gay world I mean there's people like Jeff Buckley or yeah or, or or Elliot Smith you know mm. I have a lot of examples of a sort of artists Really cut down in their prime due to drugs and alcohol. That uh, oh sure, yeah. That I, that I that I have to watch out for. So. Sure. Oh what a world we live in. Why am I always on a plane or a fast train? Oh what a world my parents gave me away.
1: He's you know I think th- about three years clean and sober at this point. And I mean, it's worth me just chucking in here that I interviewed him in New York in about 2001. And he was really in a bit of a state. I mean, I went to this, his hotel room and he emerged wearing a Moroccan jellaba, looking like he hadn't slept for about two days. And it, it, <laughs> he was really pretty wasted. And so. It's interesting to hear him. Talk. I mean, he, he, you know, he really was yeah. kind of dicing with death a little bit at that point. I think. Uh, well, crystal meth crystal was the struggle of exactly. choice, I believe. I definitely crystal meth, yeah. which is a big part of gay promiscuity at that time and still is. I right. think also is really interesting what
0: he talks about masculinity because that's a topic that now, fifteen years later, is very much you know front and center in public discourse. It's like, well, what you know, men can't open up about their feelings, basically, and he's very much aware of that and talks about that in a way that I think is you know not prescient because it's kind of obvious but at the same time you know it has taken a long long time for that to become an acceptable thing to talk about as a man.
2: Yes absolutely we might as well play the next clip straight away because it follows on very neatly and it's about AIDS about how he puts himself at huge risk and his anxieties about the way that the younger generation seem to be more sanguine about the risk of becoming HIV positive or catching AIDS.
5: I'm out of the game. I've been out for a long time now. I'm looking for something. It's a miracle that I didn't. Become HIV positive. Mm. Um, in terms, you know, and, and when I say that, I don't mean to sort of, you know, demonize those who are HIV positive. No. I mean, once if if you do if you are if you do zero convert, I mean there's there is you know life still. But yeah. The reason that I do bring that up is because, especially with, with 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 the generation below me, like young younger kids who are now coming out of the closet, they really don't have. This this sort of deathly fear of of AIDS that I was brought up with. And I think that's a very dangerous position right now. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's tremendously interesting. I'm going back to what else he talks about. I mean, again, he, he he talks about in fact this what what you were talking about, Jasper, is the failures of masculinity. He's very interesting about that. He also talks about how hugely he enjoyed being at Millbrook School, which was quite interesting because he's not sort of person you think would really enjoy being at boarding school and he absolutely loved it but he talks about his strengths and his weaknesses about his relationship with his sister martha it's it's about 45 minutes long this interview and i said the sound quality isn't great but it's really worth listening to i I know that he said these things a lot elsewhere the one thing about rufus is he's ruthlessly almost almost the point of showing off honest about who he is But he he talks about,
0: you know, classical music and how you don't have to be young in classical music. You don't have to be attractive in classical music. The the idea almost behind classical music is that you get old and fat and ugly and then you write your best stuff. (laughs) And I think that's quite a funny take. And, you know, I think he's, he's insightful and he's... You know, perhaps, as, as you were saying, Barney, you know, he, he's now three years clean. He's sort of had some time to work through some of the things that maybe were driving him towards that addiction. And I think he, as a result, has comes out with some really fascinating stuff. So it's well worth a listen, I would say.
2: We talked about three weeks ago about a piece I just put in the library, which is a, a series Fred Schruer wrote on fathers and sons. And one of the, t- the two were him and Loudon and how even in this piece where loudon's been very praising of his of his son he still can't help sticking the needle and he says something like, you know that rufus really likes the limousines <laughs> and all that sort yeah, of yeah. stuff you know there's <laughs> a, a sort of like you know saucer of milk for table 12 aspect to it you know but <laughs>
3: let's not forget though let's not forget that loudon wainwright iii was a um, regular special guest on the jasper carrot comedy hour in the
1: Eighties. That's yes. right. Yeah, It's, it's like yeah, a house yeah. songwriter. Bizarre. Jasper
0: Carrot, Mirison Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I used to, people used to call like the kindergartners when I was like two or three. Used to call me Jasper Carrot because I love carrots so much. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's, just as a, a random to, fact to mention that
1: Rufus also has a new album out next week, which I gather is a sort of return to slightly more singer-songwriter-ish mode after his various sort of excursions into, like, opera and Judy Garland and so forth. I mean, I love him. I think he's a fabulous singer. I think he's a fabulous songwriter. But I do think his very best work was done with with Marius de Vries on the Want album. So I'll just sort of reiterate that. But I loved I loved him from the get-go. And you mentioned Millbrook Mark. There's this song, I think, on the first album, which was essentially – done under the sort of mentoring of Lenny Warren, Kurt Warner Brothers was called Millbrook. And it was was this wonderful song. I think Van Dyke Parks did the strange for it. So all of that got my attention, you know, but I thought this this kid's really got something, you know.
2: That's also nice to hear mm. about Lenny Waronka, because we forget what a yeah. great record man he was. You know, I mean, Prince as much his as product. Yeah. In fact, as it was, Dr- Wayne, was a right. dream so, was on
1: DreamWorks. Let me let me just correct myself. It obviously right. wasn't Warners. It was, when, it was when Lenny and Mo Austin went to, to DreamWorks. So but that's anyway, right. Great stuff. The, the great wonderful stuff. Rufus Wayne, right? Yeah.
5: The boys and girls of Milburn.
1: Mark, tell us about what else is not free on Rock's back pages. <laughs> because I always <laughs> like to sell it as not free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, the stuff you motherfuckers have to pay for. Dawn James. This is the second Dawn James interview we've put up with Steve Marriott. That's from Raid in 1966. And in both of them, I think Steve Marriott comes over as a really interesting and astute young man. You know, he said stuff in the previous one about how you know, actually stuff is about to explode, how the people at like Beatles are really doing some serious... This is around 66, you know, and it's like revolver sort of period, and he's saying, you know, just really great stuff going on when she's saying, has pop ended? This time around, he says... The writers will become singers and the singers writers and records will be produced in people's flats. Live performance won't attempt to sound like the records, but the audience won't mind. People buy records and go to shows and both will be detached from each other. Now, there was a time when that was absolutely the case. I think we're talking about 66 from 66 through to about 76, I'd say maybe 80. The live experience is a very different experience from the recorded experience. And I think twice as good for that. Unfortunately, since then, we've narrow retreated where, when you go and see bands, by and large, you see them reproduce their records as closely as they can on stage. But the other thing about the writers become singers and singers writers, this was just at the beginning of the period when bands. Are following the Beatles' footsteps, were starting to write their own material seriously, and then, of course, he looks to the future and records be produced in people's own flats. That's what's happening now, you know. So, just that one paragraph, he sort of touches on a lot of, I think, really quite interesting things about the way music is made, and the way well, music it, will it's be. It's interesting made.
3: to remember that, of course, the band's second album is almost the Basement Tapes wasn't meant to be released, but the band's second album recorded in Sammy Davis Junior.'s pool house. In the Hollywood Hills is, Absolutely. is the first record not recorded in a studio, I think, isn't it?
1: A first major label I, record? I, I, well, aside from it, sort of well be... field recordings, I suppose yeah. you may be right. Yeah. yeah in terms yeah. of like yeah, a yeah. rock and roll yeah. play. Move the truck to, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, going on to 68, this is Alan Walsh, a kind of a think piece, a comment piece in Melody Maker. The headline is, why does nobody love the Beatles? <laughs> uh, and yeah, because everyone really you know, hates the Beatles. No, but in 1968, they were getting absolutely hacked pieces in the press for things like being open about drug use and things like that. And the, the press, were, the knives are out from the press. He says, the knives are out in force. Fleet Street is gunning for the Beatles. They're asking, is the public's love affair with the Beatles over? Journalists state they're bored with the Beatles without considering how bored the Beatles may be with them. a <laughs> oh, uh, pretty good point. But historically, we assume that everyone all the time loved the Beatles. And actually, by 68, a lot of people, a lot of music fans are going off the Beatles. The White album was a divided a lot of people, and you know, it was an interesting period. I mean,
0: now, and now, last sax- year, last and, year, <laughs> Abbey Road was like a best, like top 40 best selling album. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know,
0: well, well, quite so anyway, it's,
2: it's an interesting piece. He's basically defending the Beatles primarily against Fleet Street, I'd say, and well worth it. Moving on to 74, Michael Watson, Melody Maker, live review of Herbie Hancock at the Carnegie Hall. Uh, The subhead is Coarse Hancock. Michael Watts writes, Herbie rides again, yes. Well, it was a horse of a very different colour that we saw at the Carnegie Hall last Thursday, and which, as far as I'm concerned, rode pretty lamely. No one should begrudge jazz a more popular support among the rock devotees. But Hancock has coarsened his art to the point virtually of simplistic funk in an effort to show the kids out there that music really needs not be elitist and, more pertinently, to encourage them to fork out the money for his own albums. This is kind of like Circa Headhunters, I would guess, you know, maybe a year after Headhunters. Michael Watts isn't down on the idea of jazz musicians. You know, fusing what they're doing with kind of rock and roll instruments or electronics, because he's very, in the same review, he's very complimentary about Weather Report. He thinks Weather Report's doing good stuff. But he's pretty cross about the Headhunters period. Headhunters is such a great record, though. Uh, I I think it's fantastic. Such a good good
0: record. I think it's absolutely one of Herbie's (laughs) best. I think that the coarseness, the simplicity of it is part of what makes it so great, is that it's, you know, these guys who can really, really, really play. They're just yeah, yeah, sitting on it, and they're just giving mm-hmm. it, you know, like micro doses of you know,
2: <laughs> fun. <laughs> <That's> great, steady <laughs> on with the micro doses. <laughs> just, but I mean, he also had this great band, I mean, the Headshunters. They were an Oakland funk band who liked like of Power and so on, and so forth. Oakland is a great breeding mm-hmm. ground of fantastic funk music, and they were, they were absolutely fabulous. <laughs> an article an interview by a certain oh, barney God. hoskins with <laughs> elvis <laughs> costello Ooh, hey. nme in 1983 we had a version of this on the site already for an american paper but it was heavily edited this is the full version it's a really good interview barney i must say that that 83 elvis is sort of material's the wrong word but he was starting to shed his sort of furious boy image sort of stuff and he was also he'd just done the country album he's getting very interested in soul music it's around time of imperial bedroom punch the clock those are the two records most talked about in the interview and he says i never was an angry young man i was always an angry old man i always felt older and looked older than i was which is great (laughs) And and he says I am a good bloke. I don't actually hate myself, and I don't think I deserve the vitriol dumped out to me by these people. <laughs> these people being like Julie Burton, Russell Canter. Stop the, the yeah, slag
1: of rock journalism.
2: That's right. That's I, actually I was go, I was going to read that one out as well, but I cut that because it's just yes. But you've you've read these things. It's, 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 it's I, I, honestly, Barney. I think it's tr- it's a terrific interviews. You know because you know what you're talking about in terms of R&B and country and so on and so forth. So the pair of you were on the talking, same page. I mean, I
1: think I've interviewed him two or three times probably in my life. And that was, I think, the first. And I remember just, it was really lovely talking to him about the band, uh, yes. particularly Rick Danko. Yes. I, talk- I remember him talking about Rick Danko yeah. in the interview and also talking about James Carr and Country Soul. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, we're getting- one day we're going to have to do a podcast with Elvis just talking about all these about things. Country that we love, And we can bore everybody <laughs> silly.
2: Absolutely. Except it, it seems like he's left a subscription to Rock's back pages slip because Elvis, he hadn't had re- This is, he a, hadn't this got is his a public appeal. His-
5: <laughs> Declan, baby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well. Anyway, moving on. Nineteen eighty-seven live review: of The Beastie Boys with Run DMC also playing and Fishbone at Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, obviously. And this is their first national tour. I think the eighty-seven tour and. Rather to my surprise, Richard Cromlin really gets it. You know, he's not the sort of writer I'd imagine would have seen, this is frat boy, beastie Boys. Apparently they're drinking bud and there's girls dancing in cages and there's like all the that Fat sort of malarkey yeah. that they got up to. <laughs> Just like the Rocks Fat Pages Office. And Richard Cromlin says, while not a culture-busting event like the Sex Pistols' Punk Spawning American tour a decade ago, the show definitely marked a new mutation or a turn of the corner. Confirmed Raps' adoption of the teenager's weapon of choice in the perpetual struggle with authority figures. Finishing with a flourish, the pop breakthrough by their mentors Run DMC. The Beastie Boys have yanked rebellion from its heavy metal and punk ghettos and returned it to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Which I pretty spot on, actually. I, I think it's fr- so. I mean, you know, whilst he does find it absurd and musically not terribly interesting, he really mm-hmm. does get them. I think in a way which, which, at right. surprised fight! me. 1989, Jim Sullivan interviews for the Boston Globe the luscious pouting <laughs> Samantha Fox, who, for those of you who don't remember, you youngsters who don't remember, was a pastry model who then developed a pop career. And the thing is, she comes out <laughs> fabulously because she's not. Samantha Fox is not no, stupid. is not, not. stupid. You, you know, and, and since, I mean, in recent years, she's came out as gay and has done all kinds of. You know, she's she a bright woman. She says, every time I'm interviewed by women, you always get. Don't you wish you were taken seriously? I say, why? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, a fantastic thing to say, right? You, you know, she, she's not prickly or defensive it's the about of it, Marcus, but she's the same... really, isn't it?
4: <laughs> <laughs> But I'm sure Grill could write it. an interesting yeah. theory about
5: Santa <laughs> fox. <laughs> <laughs> well so
3: let's not that's forget Bob the brits David. with Mick Fleetwood. That's that's oh, a genius
1: piece of pop is, kind of it, dissembling, it, uh, isn't it? It's just like... I think do you know what I'm gonna commission grail pay him <laughs> any money he wants to deconstruct <laughs> Mick and Samantha presenting. Yeah. The brits. yeah. yeah. Never was, been better. Apart yes. from anything else, Mick Fleetwood was about six foot nine. And and she was about f- four foot eleven. <laughs>
2: When I posted that quote on our Facebook page, Jim Sullivan had completely forgotten about it. He was really pleased that I found the piece, (laughs) (laughs) which is is really (laughs) nice. Uh, Last thing I've got is May 93, New Musical Express. Paul Moody interviews Andrew Lou Goldham, the erstwhile Rolling Stones manager, immediate records boss. Andrew Lou Goldham is... Trying to resurrect another Rock Black Pages subscriber
1: by mm-hmm. the another. way it from, Br- from Brazil. To... Yeah, Andrew, baby. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and Paul Woody says he sips some red wine and slouches back into the depths of the sofa. Andrew drops names from such a height that people within thirty feet should <laughs> be provided with protective <laughs> headgear. This is, of course, his, the, this is, of course, his job. He's a bona fide rock and roll legend. He continues, sotto voce. What you've got to realise is that life is a movie and the boring bits end up on the cutting room floor.
4: It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, great. It's, it's, it's is, great. great it's he's great yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, uh, 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 I'm very fond of Andrew Lee yeah. Goldham. I mean, I'm still baffled by... His, 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 uh, he's Scientologist a Scientologist. Or... Go figure. Yes. Go <clears throat> I, I Go figure. But, I mean, I love reading interviews with him because he's got a mouth <laughs> on him and he's got story yeah. after story after story to yeah. tell. And it's a it's terrific interview. It's Fabulous. great fun. That's oh, my well, love. Can
1: I jump in very quickly? Because there's just, there's a couple of pieces. and I'll hand over to Jasper. I thought these were worth mentioning because who I think he died last week, Alan Merrill, who wrote I Love Rock and Roll <laughs> as the front man of Arrows. A little known fact about Alan Merrill's career is that he started... The, the first and one of the only Japanese glam rock bands. I mean, it's <laughs> such a bizarre story. And I have to find that knocking around in, in, in the sort of vaults of pieces that hadn't been uploaded, this piece by Dave Thompson from 2004 about this band, Vodka Collins, the wonderfully named Vodka Collins, <laughs> which was Alan Merrill's. Japanese <laughs> glam band. I mean, obviously he wasn't That's Japanese. not a string of words I expected no. to ever hear. No, and I feel embarrassed because yeah, yeah. I wrote a book on glam rock and I didn't even you know about know. Vodka Collins. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just an extraordinary little story. I think he was, he, he, he was basically used in Japanese TV ads as this slightly androgynous kind of American. And he ended up going there and forming this, <laughs> this glam rock band. And, <laughs> I mean, the rest is well—not really history, but it is really fascinating. (laughs) And then he came back to London, formed Arrows, wrote "I Love Rock and Roll," which, of course, then must have made him a pretty penny when Joan Jett had a number one hit Mm -hmm. with it in America. So that—that is great. It's it's a a great song. song. It is a great (laughs)
5: answer.
1: And the second thing, piece I just wanted to mention quickly is a lovely piece by the lovely Jude Rogers, only from actually four years ago, about Teenage Fan Club. And it's just a sort of love song to Teenage Fan yeah. Club. It's actually rather moving about how these guys have obviously gotten into middle age and and there's a sort of melancholy to it. And she's followed them all the way through their career. I'm a big fan, even though, or rather, as with Rufus Wainwright, I think their best music is, is, is way behind them. They're decent guys. They're really lovely men and, and more powerful. And I hope they keep going forever. So that, those, those are two from, from my little selection. Jasper, what about you?
0: First thing I want to talk about is an interview with Eugene Hutz the front man of a band called Gogol Bordello. I don't know if you guys have heard of Gogol Bordello. Mm-hmm. i heard the name. You don't forget <laughs> that. <laughs> so this, is, this is careful with that act, Eugene. <laughs> Pete Pefini's in The Times. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's a hysterical. I, I, it's really, really funny. He gives great quote and his story is great as well. So Gogol Bordello are... And I use the term advisedly, a gypsy punk band. And I know that gypsy is not really a word that, you know, one ought to use to describe the Romany people. I racked my brains. I couldn't come up with any other way of talking about gypsy punk or, you know, gypsy music. So if anyone has any ideas, <laughs> do write in. But for the time being, I will just use gypsy punk because one of their albums is called Gypsy Punks. And this this interview is just full of hilarious quote. I mean, it starts with... Eugene Hutz's face isn't one you forget in a hurry. When this elongated Ukrainian hybrid of man and meerkat gets animated, during our meeting in the Nottingham dressing room, his green eyes pop out from his skull and the points of his ringmaster's tash twitch like furry antennae.
1: But most of all,
0: Gogol Bordello's frontman swears. He swears in that inadvertently inventive way that people often do when English is their second language. I think is a lovely, lovely observation because <laughs> actually non-native English speakers are able to swear in a way that I think can be, can be very, very funny and very, very beautiful in its rhythm. But it's a great, great piece. And he started out just sort of traveling and making music, sort of busking and stuff. He used to wash people's car windscreens in Rome at, You know, when they stopped at an intersection. Heaven help you, says Pupipides, if you attempted to stop this, quote, refugee without papers intent on lathering your windscreen. The light would go red, and I fucking basically didn't even ask if they wanted me to clean their window or not. And what if they tried to stop him? If they tried to stop me, I would say, at this point, Hutz utters something in Italian. Only the word Madonna is clearly audible. So he helpfully explains that he'd offered to expel his dinner into the reproductive organs of an Italian motorist's mother. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
5: he's just hilarious did, I mean and did he, he, he get paid,
1: paid on the <laughs> basis of that did he get paid <laughs> <laughs> who knows who knows
0: probably he probably just scared them I mean he's quite a formidable looking guy he really has a sort of big old tash and it's it's you know i actually really like the music of Gogol bordello we used to listen to it at house parties they've got a great track called start wearing purple the lyrics of which are start wearing purple start wearing purple for me now <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't know, it's I don't know very,
0: uh, very like sort of
1: thing paul kelly like.
2: <laughs> start wearing purple wearing purple start wearing purple for me now
4: all your sanity and wits—they will all vanish. I promise. It's just a matter of time. So yeah.
0: So he interesting story. He grew up in Kiev, and you know this was at the time of the Soviet Union. So really, Western music couldn't get there, except for his dad, who had a you know an army education. Radio technology was able to tune into mm. US. Radio. So he was hearing at thirteen. He was hearing the Stooges, Jimi Hendrix, Birthday Party, all of that stuff, which nobody else was really hearing. And also, I thought this was a great anecdote. Apparently, his father was able to get tapes of like funkadelic tapes because he was a butcher. <laughs> now that might sound that might sound a bit weird, but here's, counterintuitive. Here's Everyone wants to know the guy with the meat when there's a holiday coming up, Hoots says. So that's how he ended up with tapes of certain albums. My dad was the only man in Russia who traded meat for funkadelic tapes
1: that belonged to African exchange students. <laughs> that's well, that not, not something brilliant. many people could say, really, is it? That's it so, is a claim, not... a unique claim to fame. That is fantastic. It's a great interview because that
0: was some other great stuff. Like, talk about going to the mountains after, after Chernobyl, his family managed to get hold of a Geiger counter and fled to the mountains... <laughs> And you know he, he he goes. How did I feel? Like you would going from an urban environment to East bumfuck terrified. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Where is he now? <laughs> it's Where is great. he now?
0: I don't actually know. I'm I'm not sure. I, I, he's, they're still making music. I haven't listened to any of their recent stuff, but they are still making music. So I think he seems to be doing well of, in his sort of punkish surroundings. And the music is very what you'd expect. It's very brash you know, howling accordions and Pete Phoenix describes it as Brechtian violins combined with just loud punk and moshing and stuff. I, it's good fun music. I, you'd probably hate it, but it is a good laugh. So <laughs> yeah, after all there that... you would probably
1: hate it. <laughs> no, I
0: mean, I think it's great. And this interview, I was just so, so pleased to add because it's really, it's a great piece of writing, a great piece of interviewing, and he just gives fantastic quotes. So that's, quickly you note, know, of course, uh, another
1: name check for Pete's book Broken Greek, which has now been out for about a month. I think all authors need a helping hand right now yes. so um his memoir broken greek go and buy it go and buy it but stay at home when you do so <laughs> the other piece i just wanted to mention
0: briefly again another first piece this time about so it's obviously our first piece about google bordello this time about toro y who's a sort of producer of electronic synthy kind of throwing back to disco and jazz funk and like 80s mid-tempo club stuff. And this is a really nice album review in The Wire by Simon Reynolds. You know, reasonably lengthy album review. Simon Reynolds is mixed on it. Some of it he really loves and some of it is just a bit nothingy. But he has a nice passage where he says, the sound is dominated by keyboards of every hue and grain, warm milk swells of roads, smoky electric piano out of In a Silent Way, squelchy synths that summon the New York post disco of Peach Boys and Vicky D, gnarly distorted organ like Soft Machine and Hatfield in the North.
1: Classic Reynolds Squelchy is certainly one of his favourite epithets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How I Know is almost too sumptuous with its wedding cake layers of keyboard timbres, upper register tinkles, fairy tale twinkles, bright Steve Reich pulse work, thumping lower <laughs> octave booms. I just think it's that nice. Makes- and I, and I, I happen to rather like some, some of Tori stuff. It, sort of, it is throwing back sort of slightly yachtish and it prizes production value in that way that music starts to sort of bedroom music starts to around this time, this is 2011, where people suddenly are able to make stuff that actually sounds good rather than having to resort to lo-fi and noise and whatever. And Simon Reynolds makes the point that that's actually in contrast to the pop music, which sounds, you know, is, is intentionally engineered to be as loud as possible and therefore sounds like shit. So yeah. it's, a, it's, an, it's a nice piece on that front. So just wanted to mention that.
2: Jasper, may I point out your hair in the time no, of No, you read my mind. Quite... I was just about to ask the
1: same question. I am concerned. I mean, it's not a question anyone's going to ask of me, but asking of <laughs> you, how, what are you going to do? Are you going to have to shear your own scalp? I don't know. I mean, I can't go to the hairdresser so, or
0: the No one's open. So It's magnificent. I don't know. It's just going to keep growing.
1: It's, it's, getting, you it's know, magnificent. It's unwieldy. <laughs> <laughs> it's unwieldy. I think you've got a sort of
0: cat
1: on top of (laughs) you.
0: Well, I've got to to have some company if I'm all alone.
1: (laughs) Anyway, me and my self-grown cat. (laughs) Well, on that note, it remains for. Of us to thank Martin for uh, coming in today, as
3: it were. For <laughs> staying today. In, beaming in.
1: Beaming in. Beam us, beam us <laughs> in, Scotty. Uh, you know, thanks so much because it was only just this week that I thought, oh, my God, really? Mark, we need Martin to talk about Lucinda Williams and girl Marcus, and you've talked beautifully about pleasure. those things. So, you know, good luck with everything that you're doing out in the wilds of East London. Locked down, man. <laughs> yeah, locked down <laughs> in late. <laughs> yeah, thanks to you, Mark, and thanks to Jasper. And Pleasure. we are going to go out with the, the third and final clip from Rufus Wainwright audio by maureen payton 2005 where rufus is talking about his family this wonderful the sort of clans of the mcgarrigals and the wainwrights who are all singer songwriters and all write songs about each other it's it's a sort of benign and wonderfully bitchy at times sort of musical (laughs) incestuousness so we'll go out with rufus and we will be back next week see and hear you then
0: see you then stay safe Bye. bye bye See
5: you there. Bye <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I mean I mean I, I think that certainly the fact that you know, my dad and mom were working musicians when we were growing up and, and often as small children, both Martha and I really Found out more about them as people on stage. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. And, and more about how they actually felt about us. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and or their views, you know, about love and children in general. Yeah. So, 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 so it is definitely um, at least an asset in, fi- in, 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 in knowing the truth. Yeah. Um, for better or for worse. But, yeah. Uh, but, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a great tradition that I that I that I'm that I'm lucky to have. Is a tit man He's on his mama's He's on the nipple it's a so sweeter than the ripple wine.
0: That was Rufus Wainwright in conversation with yes, Maureen Payton in 2005 concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast Many thanks to special guest Martin Collier visit his blog at fivethingsseenandheard.com The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Rufus is a tit man,
5: sucking on his mama's gland, sucking on the nipple, it's sweeter than the ripple wine. Yes, it's sweeter than the wine.